Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. And over the course of today's podcast, I'll be joined by our Middle East correspondent, Alicia Buller, deputy editor, Jonathan Davis, and our project expert, Rory Chapman. We'll be discussing Alicia's recent visit to the UAE's first schools project, as well as looking at the various high-speed rail projects emerging around the world and asking what lessons can be learned from the past. And speaking of the past, we'll also be asking what the appointment of a former Labour minister to lead a new body of investors will mean for the UK's PPP market going forward. Finally, Rory will take us through some of the early project highlights of 2024. There's going to be some musical chairs in here. We'll start with the Middle East. Alicia, you spent your New Year in the UAE and took some time out from the festivities to visit the Zayed Schools PPP project, currently being undertaken by the Abu Dhabi Investment Office uh, in partnership with Plenary and Bezix. Can you tell us a bit about the visit? Yes, I was lucky enough to visit the site itself in Abu Dhabi last week. And uh, on site, there were some key players from Plenary and key players also from Bezix. And you could see how important the project was, but by the sheer amount of people that come out on that day to see the project be almost opened. And and you could see there was a a real sense of pride in showing the project. That pride comes from the fact that this project has become a reality, four years in the making, and um, it's due actually to open slightly before time in August. Yeah, which is obviously a really great um, milestone, the fact that they're, they're on schedule to to beat their schedule effectively and you know as the first project the flagship project of this type in this part of the world yeah it's really really positive I think isn't it really positive and everyone I spoke to said that it's pretty much a blueprint for many more to come and um, there was an Abu Dhabi investment office representative there at the highest level and he made it clear to me that this was um, a fact-finding project really for more schools in future and the fact that this has been such a success, the children are due to actually turn up in August. It really is about to go. And there's another two in the pipeline for the Zayed City Schools. It has three schools. This was just one of three. But he made it clear that this is um, the, the start of many schools for Abu Dhabi and possibly the region. Yeah, which is, again, really good that we've got these plans in place. And that the, as you say, you know, Abu Dhabi Investment Office itself is taking an active interest in what's going on on the ground so that they can learn the lessons, so that they can take that back, feed that into what they do next time. And yeah, presumably bringing back a lot of positive uh, feedback as well by the sounds of it. So yeah, we're, you know, we know that part of the world is is very keen on PVPs at the moment. Projects like this, hopefully, will only increase that optimism. Yeah, yeah. There's a massive appetite and there's a lot of optimism and I could see it there on the site. And um, Blueprint was one thing that was mentioned a few times. They also spoke to me about the importance of partnership and how well, the engineer, the lead engineer of the project, told me that in terms of partnership, it had been one of the most seamless he'd worked on. And he emphasised partnership and transparency of information and working together as being imperative in making sure the project gets across the line on time. And so going forward, he wants all the parties to work together as closely in future. Yes, yeah. And obviously, you're covering that region fairly closely and seeing what's happening, not just in Abu Dhabi, not just in the UAE, but across the Middle East. And yeah, I really get the sense, as you say, Blueprint mentioned several times that it's something I think that people not just in the UAE are watching, probably, isn't it? That, you know, um, we've talked before about the role of the middle classes in this part of the world resulting in a greater demand for good quality education and education facilities. 
So really, we can see that this is potentially the start of something big. Actually, on that point, I was interested to note that this school, the Zayas City School, is for UAE locals. It's actually for local students. Um, so the schools will be for everyone, but this is for domestic demand in the UAE. I, I, I hadn't realised that actually until I was at the school. But yeah, like you say, this should be a blueprint not just for the UAE, but for other countries which have big education programmes rolling out, like Qatar, Kuwait. Oman has a big scheme, so everyone's eyes will be keenly on this school because as far as I know, it's the first school that's actually been built. There's lots of plans, there's lots of talk, but this is the first school that's been erected physically. Yeah, as you say, we'll all be watching it with interest when it opens, won't we? And yeah, we'll see what comes next, particularly from the ADIO, Abu Dhabi Investment Office, as they look to build in what they've learned here into what comes after. Yeah, I got the impression that, like you say, this is the um, first of many and not just in education, but they're also eyeing PPP in general. They're testing that model for other areas. And, and one area I noted of interest was food security. And that got me thinking, what kind of areas of food security are we talking about? Are we talking about warehouses? Are we talking about hydroponics? That's definitely one to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And an area that... Um, isn't really covered very much by PPPs generally, so kind of a, no. a new area really for, for PPP development potentially. Yes. Interesting. Very good. And just to remind everyone, there is a write-up of that visit that Alicia has done on our website, which includes a video interview on the site. So do go and check that out. Now it's time for Jonathan to join me. Jonathan, I believe you wanted to have a conversation about high-speed rail. Yeah. So in the last weeks and months, really at the tail end of last year, we've seen some really interesting projects move forward in a sector which actually don't come across that often because of the sheer heft of high speed rail and often the kind of national importance. PPPs rarely are actually part of the frame, but that seems to have changed. Just to highlight a few of the ones that have kind of come across my desk recently in the last two weeks actually we've had Kuala Lumpur and Singapore have got a high-speed rail which they revived last year and now they've had seven teams formally enter the race for that project over 700 people actually went to the industry day last year so that's a really impressive pool also we've had in the Czech Republic a high-speed rail there as appointed advisors to help carry out how PPPs could fit into that We've had in California recently advisors being sought to help analyse potential models. And also most recently in Portugal, the first section of their uh, high-speed rail, which is going to be done in three sections, has just been tendered. Now, the infrastructure Portugal one is DBFOM, Kuala Lumpur's DBFM, Czech Republic and California are considering the models and, and, and how to do it. And interestingly, in Canada, they've got one of their flagship. It's a huge project. It's going to go all the way from Quebec to Toronto. That is being procured as a progressive P3. So I think what I wanted to highlight there is just the range of the different models that are being applied to these projects. And these are all around the world, obviously. And I think that kind of shows the dexterity of the model and, and the ability for it to adapt and be able to be applied in different contexts. It's really impressive to see that actually progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's quite interesting, as you say, that we've had this kind of move towards using PVP for high-speed rail that uh, we haven't seen an awful lot of, particularly in, in recent years. I guess you know a big part of it is down to budgets. And we've talked on this podcast, we've written stuff as well about how governments are finding it difficult to find the money they need for the projects they want to deliver. And um, you know maybe it's it's a case that, that actually 
they've reached a point where they need to deliver some of this stuff, but have but literally have no other realistic options. I think as well that the, the point about governments wanting to keep control as well, perhaps has you know historically been an issue that you know particularly we think here in the UK of HS two. I think one of the reasons initially put forward for that not being a privately financed or PFI or whatever it might have been is that it was you know the government it, the government felt it was too big to be you know just given over to the private sector i think given where we are with hs people may uh, have different opinions today but i do wonder if there's a certain amount of realization as well around the fact that maybe these models can enable the governments to keep some control mm. and that actually they are able to set the parameters for a project that actually you know, they don't need necessary to have full control over uh, the, the the full delivery of that. Yeah, and I think if you look at the models that have been selected on the ones which we know, you can see some kind of at least superficial differences where the KL to Singapore one is such a defined route that you can imagine being able to kind of tie a bow on some of the proposition elements. Whereas if you look at the one in Canada, it's so big and so impressive that the government and the private sector working together to progressively develop it makes quite a lot of sense because it could evolve and there could be you know, unforeseen elements around the corner where you need to have that joint approach. And I was just reading some of the comments that the chief executive who's in charge of delivering the Canada project in charge of Via Rail said that they're not going to put a timetable and a cost to it because that can just be detrimental to the actual ability to even scope out the project and just take baby steps that you might need to at the beginning and we've seen that repeatedly with HS2 where the headlines are always about cost escalation and timelines and sometimes being able to transmit to the public who are obviously looking at those headlines that that doesn't tell the whole story about the project and how difficult it is to develop these projects yeah and i think the question of progressives this might be where you see it you know really taking effect and being a really positive way of doing things because you know we've talked plenty of times and had plenty of discussions with people around progressives good bad ugly whatever and that debate continues to roll on and you know the I think probably we're at a place where we would say it's horses for courses or for some it works and for some it doesn't. Maybe actually these kind of high-speed rail projects, it does work because one of the things that the private sector can bring to the table at that early stage is actually working out whether this is a viable commercial proposition or not. And being able to say, for example, in Canada, you know, you've got these plans for all these stops along the route. Well, if it turns out perhaps it's not commercially viable, that people just aren't going to use those some of those stops, then maybe it's it's better that that's worked out now and and sorted out rather than going ahead with it and you know you, you end up with a, a project that the government just keeps having to fund mm. because it's just not commercially viable yeah totally and then the government also can bring a different perspective where they can incorporate the you know the in, kind of intangible benefits of a project like this and if you think about the link it's often called the one of the first PPPs but the channel tunnel in between London and Paris I mean the economic benefit that has brought both countries is impossible to calculate but it's enormous and you know being able to work together and get both of those elements coinciding and you know creating a positive feedback loop in in the development of a project could be a really important way of finding a solution 
yeah, and obviously the public sector can bring to it the ideas around regeneration that, you know, a, a private sector developer on their own would not be perhaps interested in uh, if they're working solely on a, a rail route. And you, you only think of, of someone like King's Cross, which has been transformed because in part because it's the location of the, the Eurostar terminal hmm. for HS1. And actually, just on that issue of HS1 and the Channel Tunnel rail link and the situation we find ourselves in in HS2, we do actually have a piece on our website at the moment, which was created by Mark Williams, who worked actually on HS1 in part, just kind of highlighting and maybe demonstrating a little bit the different models that have been used on those two projects yeah, and the point that I really took away from that, and it really is worth a read because I learned a lot from it in this discussion as a whole, is the open-mindedness towards models is what can really drive the ultimate success of a model. And that seems to be a little bit of what was lacking with HS2. And so I think, yeah, when you consider the kind of flurry of these major projects that has come forward, it is a really great time to look at the lessons learned on the high-speed projects that have and have not managed to progress. Yes, and actually, I guess that goes to a wider point about using the different forms of P3, PPP. And, you know, we talked before Christmas about the situation in Ontario where quite a few projects that had previously been going down a particular design-build finance DBFM route were taken back a step and were put in back into the kind of to-be-determined bucket. Um, and, you know, I think we said at the time that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing. And I think this probably highlights that, that actually, you know, coming up with a, a model first and then working out how you're going to straightjacket something into that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the best results. No. And just from the other side of the aisle as well, we've spoken a bit about the you know the, the government decision-making there, but on the Canada project, there are three teams that have been shortlisted for it. There's major names, you know, CDPQ, Atkins Realis, Ellis Don, Fengate, John Lang, etc. These are major names in the industry. So clearly there is interest in delivering projects of this scale. So it could be... It's definitely one to watch. I mean, they're, they're rare, but they are massive and they're so important to the development of whole countries at the same time. So if PPPs and new models can help provide a solution and get these projects feasible, it could be a really important area for the industry as a whole. Yeah. And as you say, rare, but potentially growing for P3 and PPP, yeah. which is really interesting. Now, another topic of discussion has been the appointment of Lord John Hutton as the chair of the Association of Infrastructure Investors in Public-Private Partnerships, or AIIP. Those who have been paying attention might remember that this was the organisation set up by a group of the main investors in UK PFI projects, uh, created in the wake of the White Fraser report into PFI behaviours. And the idea was it was an effort to improve the industry's reputation and also provide a single voice when responding to and engaging with the government and others. So I think this is a really big moment for the industry and for the association itself. Yeah. And in the last podcast, we spoke about how you know, we're waiting for the IPA's response to the White Fraser report. What's the significance of this in regard to that and what we could expect in the next year, Paul? Well, I think, you know, a big part of it is obviously he's a big hitter. He has a lot of relevant experience in actually in the PFI market as was. 
You know, he was a health minister for six years from 1999, which is when the hospital programme in the UK was really ramping up. Uh, he was also business secretary, which was among his cabinet positions. So, you know, he's come across this industry and PFI and PPPs in his work. And I understand actually that the association was quite impressed with his eagerness to, as it was put, you know, bring balance to the discussion around PFI. So I think going forward, and I keep mentioning the word, well, the phrase PFI, to be honest, I think my impression from the people I've spoken to on this is that it's more about trying to look at what we can do next, what the country can do next around PBP as a, a broader concept, rather than simply trying to repolish the, the name of PFI. Is there any significance to the fact that he's a Labour lord? I mean, a lot of the polls are suggesting that we could have a Labour government. Is that putting two and two together and making five? Apparently, he's still really well connected with Labour aficionados today. So he will certainly be, I think, you know, bending their ear around use of private finance for future infrastructure development. And, you know, we know we've seen a lot of talk around what Labour wants to do on infrastructure. You know, before Christmas, we've had them coming up with a discussion, a roundtable with investors. Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has talked several times about partnerships and the role of partnerships. And then more recently, started this year, we've had Labour sort of creating a, a commission to look at infrastructure. So you know, they're really focused on this as a way of um, planning for the next election. And so his involvement is going to be quite important for the AIIP and the investors to get their message across to uh, what many people believe may well be the next government. Yeah, I wrote an article a short while ago, and I spoke to a number of people in the industry kind of off the record about what they were hoping for from a potential new government. And the gist I got was kind of just a, a fresh start, or well, they were hopeful of a, a, an open-minded rethink of, of how infrastructure is delivered and might not necessarily have to go back to specific models, but just a, a willingness to really drive the conversation forward. And that is in the context of a very, very competitive international market. I think we saw one of the first times confidence really low in international investors in infrastructure for the UK, which has traditionally been such a safe market. And when you've got you know, America's going all guns blazing on, on its infrastructure programs, Saudi Arabia, the EU are, are preparing their green infrastructure kind of package, it's competitive. You don't have to go like for like in terms of that spending. I think whatever government is in there can be really creative in the way that it gets infrastructure there. But confidence is such a key thing. And I think, as I said, whoever's there, getting confidence is going to be the real crack. Yeah, and I think the difficulty, I guess, that faces any government now in the UK looking for investment, looking to deliver new infrastructure, may well be that competition from international areas. And you know, lots of people have made the com comparison with 1997, suggesting that you know we're in a very similar position. And in some ways we are. But in 1997, I think there was perhaps more excitement and optimism around what new Labour, as was, could deliver and would look to deliver. I think it's a bit more cautious now, especially perhaps because of the experience of PFI, you know, because of, for all the you know claims that you hear of huge profits, many organisations in PFIs did not make huge profits, had various struggles. And on top of that, They've seen their work where it has gone well, sort of criticised and sort of 
beaten down and, and all this kind of stuff. So maybe the UK isn't as attractive as it was. I mean, that said, you know, you look around at what the UK is currently doing. There's the, the DPC contracts in water, which from, you know, my conversations, people still seem quite keen on those to invest in them when they come down the pipeline. You've got the MIM road project in Scotland, which we talked about last time, where there is still investor interest. And then you've got the massive investment of Sizewell C. And a comment from a minister relatively recently saying that they consider themselves to be on track to get the investment they need for that. Now, I guess you could argue maybe he wouldn't ever say they weren't on track because that raises confidence questions in itself. But it is known that there are people out there looking to invest in Sizewell C. So there's certainly investor appetite. Yeah. And just on that nuclear point, in this last week, another nuclear power plant could be coming online. Don't know what model that would be, whether it would be RAB or not. But you know, there's big infrastructure being built in the UK. And with the right atmosphere and communication with the market and stuff, there's it, it, it could be a really exciting space, but it will take some work to, to get there. It'll take a lot of work and it'll take a lot of communication, I think. You know, the, the real danger for an incoming Labour government suddenly saying, we're going to do all these projects and we're going to get the private sector to finance them is that people turn around and say, you're just doing PFI again and that was a disaster. And just to circle back from where we started this, that's where this advocacy position could be really critical in in the long term of the private investment industry. If you can make sure that, you know, the what's gone right is communicated properly and, and what's gone wrong is understood and being able to be incorporated in what the next projects might look like, it could be a real turning point. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that takes us back, doesn't it, to the conversation I was having with Alicia earlier around you know, learning the lessons, people being on the ground to learn the lessons of how a project is developed and, and you know taken through. So yeah, I think there's definitely a big role for Lord Hutton to play. And it'll be interesting to see how he plays that as well. So I've got with me now Rory, you're our projects expert. What's been catching your attention recently? Thanks, Jonathan. Good to join you. Yes, so as well as the high-speed rail projects in California, which yourself and Paul were discussing earlier, there's been a load of other recent projects also in California, which have either progressed recently, gone out to tender, or are currently progressing through the procurement process. The state is currently experiencing a bit of a boom in the P3 industry, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Local authorities really making the most of legislation, such as the IIJA and TIFIA, as well as six billion of funding to expand the state's broadband fibre infrastructure through Senate Bill 156. So in the transportation sector, several really high-profile projects have emerged or progressed through procurement in recent months. Thinking of Inglewood Transit Connect project in LA, recently reached the RFP stage in November last year after three teams were shortlisted in May 2022. In recent weeks, it's received significant federal funding and that's a real show of strength for its future, I think. And another noteworthy transit scheme to have progressed through procurement recently, uh, we touched on it a couple of episodes ago, is the Contra Costa Microtransit project, where uh, a plenary-led team has been selected to deliver the system. team also features technology provider Glideways and contractor Flatiron, who are going to deliver the robo-taxi system, which will connect into the Bay Area rapid transit system. I love both of those projects. I think there's some really exciting ones in California. Obviously, Sepulveda is working away in the background. There's so much innovation in that sense. But, I mean, anyone who's been looking at California recently is going to have to have had their eyes caught by the mammoth project in San Diego. 
what's going for on sure. there. For sure. Yeah, you're talking about Nowhere, of course, which is currently dominating the horizon, I think it's fair to say, throughout the US. It's the Navy's revitalization project in San Diego, which will see the redevelopment of a 70-acre site at the Naval Base Point Loma Old Town Campus. The project will also include a major regeneration component, so it's looking like really kind of massive, large-scale development there. An Edgemore and Manchester Financial Group-led team has been selected as the potential master developer to deliver the project. So once signed, the team will design, build and finance a new 1.7 million square foot Navy facility in exchange for the option to lease and develop other areas across the site. So it's looking like a really huge and historically quite significant project there in San Diego. But what about on the smaller scale? We've seen... I know, I'm just thinking back, there's perhaps more last year that there's some interest in civic projects going on. There's one in Garden Grove. What about projects that are a bit smaller? Anything interesting going on in California? Yeah, so I wanted to just draw some attention to the higher education sector in California, where we've seen a few interesting projects that have been signed in recent months. So the University of California, San Diego, has entered into a P3 with Wexford Science and Technology. So that project will double the size of the Science and Research Park on the uni's San Diego East Campus. So it's a pretty significant development. Elsewhere in the state, a deal was signed in October last year between the Uni of California Berkeley, NASA and SKS Partners, which will deliver a major spaced research hub. That project will see 1.4 million square feet of research space developed on NASA's facility in Mountain View, which will provide new space for labs and classrooms. So it's really interesting to see how P3 is being used by unis to deliver these research facilities and kind of goes to demonstrate that it's not just student housing where the P3 model can be successfully utilised in the higher ed sector. Yeah, fantastic. That's a nice couple of highlights. And uh, I know there's other projects as well, which you've uh, been working on as part of a hotspot on California. Is that right? Sure. Well, just speaking of student housing, a recent tender was issued by Santa Monica College seeking private partners to deliver a new student housing project there. So it's definitely something that some of our listeners will want to keep an eye on. But you can read more about the recent projects in California in the biogas, housing, broadband and other sectors in an in-depth hotspots piece, which is now live on the site. Well, thanks very much, Rory. Thanks, Jonathan. Cheers. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today and thank you for listening. And please do leave a review. We'd love to hear what you've got to say. Goodbye for now.